back with you. Um, I was looking at my calendar, and it's been almost two years since I've been here um, preaching before you on a Sunday morning. It was last, it was October 2017, so it has been a while, so it's good to be back before you, church. And that Sunday in October 2017, when I came and uh, Brian allowed me to preach that Sunday, in the congregation were, were two men from a search committee who were a part of a church in DeSoto, Missouri, if you know where that is, who had come to hear me preach, and um, through that and a couple other things in, in the process, I'm at First Baptist DeSoto, and I've been there for a little over a year as an associate pastor there, so um, it's good to be back. They let me have this opportunity this morning to come and uh, speak to you, so I'm very thankful that uh, they let me do that. So it's good to be here. Um, it's always good to come back home uh, to preach before you all. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of Numbers. We're going to be in Numbers 28 and 29, which is about a thousand verses, so we're not going to read them all. Um, but we are going to talk about them all. And, and while you're turning there, um, I do have a story for you. So last night, uh, Leah and I were sitting on the couch, and um, Dad walks into the room, and he says, he calls me Flip. He says, Flip, what are you preaching out of Romans tomorrow? And I said, Romans? Well, am I supposed to be preaching out of Romans? And he says, yeah, Brother Brian's been preaching out of Romans for a while now. And I'm like, we got a problem. And uh, no, we're not in Romans. Brian's been in Numbers, praise God, because uh, that's the sermon that I wrote. So we're going to be in Numbers. Um, so Numbers numbers 28. And I absolutely love the book of Numbers. I often get uh, a lot of raised eyebrows when I tell people that the book of Numbers is my favorite book in the Bible. Um, for a lot of reasons, I absolutely love the book of of numbers and just to give you a little bit of a glimpse as to why I love the book of numbers I want you to think back to last week when Brian preached on numbers 27 so or numbers 26 and numbers 27 and so in numbers 26 and 27 there's just so many fascinating things that happen in the book of numbers um, but in numbers 27 particularly we have the story of the daughters of Zelophehad and uh, the story is unique because in it, the, uh, the land that is going to be taken in the promised land is about to be allotted. And everybody's going to be given their share based on their family. And these daughters of Zelophehad, so, so you can take pride in the fact that even somebody who studied a lot of the Bible doesn't know how to pronounce the names in the Bible. Um, so the daughters of Zelophehad, they, they, they go to Moses and they're like, Moses, um, our father has died and if... if um, the the laws that you are saying are coming from God are going to be true, then our family name is going to be wiped out. We don't we don't have a, a son who the land can go to who carries our father's name. So can the daughters, can we inherit the land? And so Moses goes before God, and what does God say? God says, you know what? The daughters of Zelophehad are right. That doesn't happen a lot. Where God... God doesn't ever change his mind, but where, where the people of God make a plea before God, and the will of God is that something that God says is going to change. That's really unique, and it's a beautiful testimony to how God cares for his people, even in one of the things we're going to talk about today, how God cares for us even in the smallest of details. Right In the grand scheme of things, the, the daughters of Zelophehad, their father's name continuing isn't that large of a deal, but God listens to them. And he cares that they want their father's name to go on. And so 
It's a Numbers is a beautiful book. There's all sorts of things that happen in the book of Numbers that are very unique. But today, <laughs> we're just having a time up here, aren't we? Y'all want to come up here and join in on the fun? <laughs> that's all right. That's all right. Okay. But we're in 28 and 29 today. So in 28 and 29, we see um, more really fascinating things. But before we get into 28 and 29, and I'm actually only going to read a couple verses out of 28 and 29, because we're not going to walk through every single verse. But before we get into 28 and 29, I want to remind you of something that Brian told you a long time ago. I don't know. He told me that he told you this, but I don't know when he told you this. So I'm going to remind you of it. Um, so th- this, is a, this is a story from a long time ago. So in the year 132 B.C., there was a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So you're aware that your Old Testament wasn't originally written in English, I hope. So the, the Bible wasn't originally written in English, and it was originally written in Hebrew and Greek and this third language called Aramaic. But in 132 B.C., so way before Jesus, 130 years before Jesus, the Old Testament was translated into Greek. And we call that Greek version of the Old Testament, this fancy long word, we call it the Septuagint. So I don't know if you've heard that word before. We call it the Septuagint. And it's from the Septuagint, so the Greek version of the Old Testament, where we get the name for our book of Numbers. Right, so Numbers, in it's actually in Latin, but it comes from the Greek. It's the word arithmoi, which we can get arithmetic from, very simply. And so it's the, it's the word Numbers. But in the Hebrew Old Testament, the name of the book of Numbers was Bamidbar. And Bamidbar means in the wilderness. And so when, whenever, um, if you were to have it bring a kid on stage and say, do you want to read the book Numbers or do you want to read the book In the Wilderness, which one are they going to pick? They're going to pick In the Wilderness every time. And so I think a lot of our lack of understanding of the book of Numbers and our lack of a desire to read the book of Numbers comes from the fact that we think it's a lot of numbers. And it's a lot more than a lot of numbers. Um, and so whenever uh, Brian mentioned this in his first sermon on the series, if you go to First Corinthians, you don't have to turn there, but if you were to go to First Corinthians 10, 5 and 6, we see this passage where Paul says, everything that happened in the wilderness was for you, church. It was for your good, for your benefit, so that you would remember all the, really, all the dumb things that Israel did in the wilderness that caused them to be in the wilderness, so don't do them anymore. Right, the, the wilderness story is important for us to, I mean, really, we talk about people who are grumbling and complaining and get upset easy and just stray away from God. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like a people who you've heard of before? A grumbling people who can get, they're kind of cranky sometimes. Numbers has a lot of applications for us today. And so I'm thrilled that Brian has been working through this book with you. Few preachers will take the time to walk through a big book like Numbers. And and you have a blessing in Brian. You really do. Um, So he is a wonderful pastor. And so you are blessed to have him, church. Especially somebody who's willing to do the difficult lifting of a book like this. So, our chapters, 28 and 29. I'm going to read two passages And I know it is the custom of this church to stand while we read. So if you would stand, and we're going to read two uh, long passages from these two chapters. uh, The first coming in 28, 16 through 25. So uh, this is the word of the Lord from Numbers 28, 16 to 25. On the 14th day of the first month is the Lord's Passover. 
And on the fifteenth day of the month is a feast. Seven days shall unleavened bread be eaten. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but offer a food offering, a burnt offering to the Lord, two bulls from the herd, one ram and seven male lambs, a year old. See that they are without blemish. Also, their grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an epath, shall you offer for a bull, and two-tenths for a ram. A tenth shall you offer for each of the seven lambs, also one male goat for a sin offering, to make atonement for you. You shall offer these beside the burnt offering of the morning, which is for a regular burnt offering. In the same way, you shall offer daily for seven days the food of a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It shall be offered besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. And on the seventh day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. Then Numbers 29, 7 through 11. 29, 7 through 11. On the tenth day of this seventh month you shall have a holy convocation and afflict yourselves. You shall do no work, but you shall offer a burnt offering to the Lord, a pleasing aroma. One bull from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs a year old. See that they are without blemish. And their grain offering shall be of fine flour mixed with oil. Three-tenths of an epa for the bull. Two-tenths for the one ram. A tenth for each of the seven lambs. Also one male goat for a sin offering. Besides the sin offering of atonement. And the regular burnt offering and its grain offering and their drink offerings. Let's pray. God, we have from your word a complicated passage today. I pray that you'd give us understanding. I pray that through the talk of offerings and sacrifices that we would see you and what you have done for us more clearly. Speak to us today through the book of Numbers. Cause us to remember the rebellion of your people so long ago so that we might not rebel. We love you, Lord. Make much of Jesus this morning. These things we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. So what are we to say about a bunch of passages in 28 and 29 over and over? So what we read today, that's how all of those two chapters read. They read, for this, on this day, make this offering. On this day, do this thing. Over and over again in 28 and 29. So to make it a little more simple for you, I broke it down like this. In chapter 28, we get general offerings. So offerings that happen yearly, daily, and monthly that happen specifically at the Passover and happen specifically at the Feast of Weeks. So these are offerings in general. And then chapter 29, we get special offerings or offerings that only take place during the seventh month. So in verses 1 through 6, we get the Feast of Trumpets, the offering at the Feast of Trumpets. On 7 through 11, we get the offerings for the Day of Atonement. And for verses 12 through 40, we get the offerings for the Feast of Booths. Offerings and sacrifices are so important for your Old Testament and for understanding your New Testament. A lot of times, um, you know those little Bibles that, that have like the Psalms and then just the New Testament? You know those little, those little like little dealios? I don't like those things. I don't like them even one bit. Um, and here's why. Because in those little Bibles, those little half Bibles, we have no idea, no reason to understand why Jesus comes onto the scene in the first place. 
right? There's no story to explain, hey, here's who Jesus is, here's why he came, here's why it's important to know that this man is the Savior. So what we see in the Old Testament is we see the path, the groundwork that's being laid for Jesus. Now, if you have one of those little half Bibles, I'm not mad at you. I'm not, I'm not picking a fight or anything. Um, but I say we really need the Old Testament. We don't, we don't need to take the Old Testament out of our Bibles. Numbers and all of these offerings, though they're confusing, are very important. And they're important for a lot of reasons. So if we were to go throughout the book of Numbers, even throughout the book of Leviticus, throughout the first five books of the Bible, we would see this conversation about offerings and sacrifices. You could look at Numbers 15. You could look at the whole book of Leviticus and over and over. And you would see offering after offering. Israel, this is what you must do. Israel, this is how you must act. So let me do this. I like to think of the first five books of the Bible. What do we call the first five books of the Bible? The Torah, the law, right? So the first five books of the Bible, so take it like this. So Genesis, over here, the first book, is the prologue. It's the before stuff to Israel's story, okay? Then Exodus, with the rising of Moses and God's people in slavery, is really the beginning of God's story with his people. It's the beginning, right? They're in slavery, they're going to get out of slavery, and they're going to go somewhere. So Exodus is the beginning of the story. Leviticus, all of Leviticus takes place at Mount Sinai. So Exodus ends at Mount Sinai, Leviticus takes place at Mount Sinai, and now Israel's going to get a bunch of rules. And God's going to be like, on this day you sacrifice this animal, and so on. So the book of Leviticus all takes place at Sinai because God's preparing his people for what? The promised land. God's preparing his people to go into the promised land. So the book of Numbers, they're headed towards the promised land, and they've already got all of their laws and everything from the book of Leviticus, and then... They disobey, and they're cast into the wilderness for 40 years. So in Numbers, we have from Mount Sinai all the way to the Promised Land with 40 years of disobedience in the middle, okay? And so the end, you're coming to the end of the time in the wilderness here in 28 and 29, and Israel is about ready to go into the Promised Land. So when we come to, uh, to Numbers 28 and 29, what's happening is God is preparing his people to take the Promised Land. He's preparing his people to say, when you get in the land, do this. When you get in the land, make these offerings. And here's why. Because if you look, if you, if you think about the book of Numbers, right, when they're in the wilderness, how are they fed? A lot of times they're, they're fed with, they, they have some, but a lot of times there's manna that comes from the sky, right? So there's, there's all of this um, unique way, because they're nomadic, right? Do nomadic people have lots and lots and lots of cattle? No. I don't know any present-day nomadic farmers who have cattle. I can't think of a single one, right? You've got you to gotta stay in one place for a while to have 113 bulls, right? Because they're going to go, if you're in the wilderness, they're going to go off into the wilderness too, right? So, so all of these offerings, they're preparing Israel to take the promised land. So what I want to I pull from these two chapters, I want to pull three things. So I love really structured sermons. So uh, my title, if you're a note taker, is Offerings to God. And I want to pull three things from these two chapters for you. The first thing is this. What's happening in 28 and 29 is God is teaching Israel how to worship him. God is teaching his people when they get into the promised land. He is teaching them how to worship him. So, and as a part of worship, I have two sub points. First one is this. God is in charge 
of how he will be worshipped. God is in charge of how he will be worshipped. Now you're thinking, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, Colton. I like to worship on my own terms. I like to come to church and feel good about myself and do really whatever I want with my life. Well, the Bible's going to have a lot of problem with that. So let's look at a couple of the problems the Bible has with that mentality. If we were going to go back, you don't have to turn there. But if you were to go to Leviticus 10, what you would see in Leviticus 10 is a story that a lot of you, some of you, might be familiar with. There's, there's two men who make a grave mistake, Nadab and Abihu, and they determine that they want to offer a fire offering to God when God didn't ask for it, when God didn't want it. When God hadn't commanded Nadab and Abihu to offer a sin offering of fire. So what happens? If you look at Leviticus 10, it's a gruesome scene. But Nadab and Abihu are consumed by the fire. They're brought to destruction. Like, wow. That's, that's a pretty severe picture. Even in the book of Numbers. So this is one of the reasons why I love the book of Numbers. If we were to go to Numbers chapter 4, what we would see in Numbers chapter 4 is there's this group of people called the Kohathites. Do you guys remember Brian talking about the Kohathites? Anybody? In chapter 4, when the Kohathites are brought up, they're a sect of the family of Levi. And so if you remember, they are additionally set apart to be able to go into the, uh, the tent of meeting, to go to the altar, and they're in charge of carrying special things. They're in charge of doing special things in the tent of meeting. So more than Levi... The Kohathites have additional responsibility. They have additional responsibility. Other than Moses and Aaron and his sons, the Kohathites are like, they're the top dogs. They get to do everything. And then we get to Numbers, the, the, I think it's 16. If we look at Numbers 16 at the rebellion of Korah. Remember this story? The rebellion of Korah. Korah, this is, I love saying this, Korah was a Kohathite. He had additional responsibility at the tent of meeting. And so he had, other than Moses and Aaron, Korah and his sons had all sorts of responsibility before God at the place where Israel worshipped. But what does Korah say? That's not enough. Korah riles up a bunch of people and says, no, Moses and Aaron, you guys are wrong. Anybody can worship God however they want. And Moses is like, we've seen this before at Mount Sinai. This isn't going to end well. So what happens? Moses says, okay, gather your 250 men and offer a fire offering to God. Offer an incense offering to God. And what happens? The ground opens up and the 250 men with Korah are swallowed up into the ground forever. They're destroyed. Why? Because they wanted to worship God on their own terms. They wanted to say, no, Moses and Aaron, anybody can go into the tent of meeting. Anybody can stand face to face before God. Not just you, Moses. And so what happens? They were destroyed. So God is in charge of how he will be worshipped. So if we walk through all of these different offerings, they might sound weird to us today, but this is how God was setting his people apart. He was setting his people apart. He was preparing them to go into the land. And so God is in charge of how he will be worshipped. Point two. God is more important than your time. God's more important than your time. So whenever we think about worshiping God, God is more important than your time. If we look throughout 28, we're going to see daily offerings, we're going to see monthly offerings, and we're going to see yearly offerings. This is something, offering sacrifices to God was something that was so at the forefront of Israel's mind. It was something they had to do every day. 
It was a daily sacrifice, right? We see in the book of Romans that we're supposed to live as a pleasing sacrifice to God, live as a living sacrifice before God. And we don't get this, that sacrifices were literally a daily thing for the Israel people, for the Israeli people, for God's people. They were a daily thing. But that's, that still seems a little bit distant. So let me give you specific numbers, because we're in the book of Numbers, why not? As it relates to what God's people were expected to sacrifice. So, yearly, this is what God's people were expected to sacrifice. Over 113 bulls, 32 rams, 180, or 1,086 lambs, more than a ton of flour, and more than 1,000 bottles of oil and wine. And that's just the regular offerings. That's not the special offerings. That's just the daily, monthly, yearly offerings that God's people were expected to sacrifice to God. That's a lot. I, there's probably one guy who was just in charge of killing animals. And that's all he did. Because it took so, can you imagine how long it would take? It's not like you just kill an animal and lay it on an altar. No, there's, there's fire offerings. It's, it's a time-consuming endeavor. And so God demands a lot from his people, right? This, this isn't something that would happen quickly. This is something that took time. It cost land, it cost property. In a real sense, to sacrifice all of these things, it cost God's people a lot. It cost them their lives, right? It set them apart, but it cost them their lives, the very livelihood that they had, right? So they don't have a, a monetary system at this time, really. So any type of uh, monetary growth they had would come by way of land or cattle or, or some type of animal or there was some type of um, flour, oil, whatever it was. These were what they used for transactions, and this is what they were expected to sacrifice. It was their very livelihood. So consider those implications for yourself. Consider the implications of God wants to be worshipped in a particular way. And then think about it for yourself. Where do you fit into that picture? God wants to be worshipped a particular way. We see it in the New Testament. He says in the book of Timothy to submit to the preaching of God's word. To, in Hebrews, not forsake the gathering of the believers. Right to in Timothy again, he talks about um, submitting to the public reading of Scripture, submitting to public prayer. Are we doing these things? Are we not forsaking to do these things? Right, we're here, so we're all like, "Yeah, I'm doing it." Um, but are we doing it regularly? Are we doing it often? Is it something that's from our heart, or is it something that's from just a we come and we do this every week mentality? Because God, what it says in Romans, wants us to be a living sacrifice to be to be. Um, bodies that give ourselves up for him. God wants to be worshipped in a particular way. Are we worshipping him in that particular way? Let me ask it a different way. Are you worshipping God on his terms or on your terms? Because here's the truth. If you're worshipping God on your terms, you're not worshipping God. You're worshipping yourself. And that's what we see from the book of Numbers. Because Korah, and Nadab and Abihu, they wanted to worship God on their own terms because they thought they knew more than God. They thought they knew more than God's prophet Moses and his priest Aaron. They thought they knew more. So what did they do? They went and worshiped God on their own terms. They worshiped themselves and God destroyed them. And we could go and we could see all sorts of times in Scripture where this mentality of God being worshiped on God's terms, not our terms, being true. We could go and look at 
Joshua 7 and the story of Achan. We could go to Acts, I think, 5 at um, Ananias and Sapphira. It happens throughout Scripture. People rebelling against God and seeking to worship God on their terms and not His. So are you worshiping God on His terms or yours? That's the first point of application. So, second major point that I want to look at. Second major point I want to look at. So we talked about worship for a little bit. Let's talk about sacrifice. So sacrifice is a central and crucial theme throughout the whole Bible. Sacrifice is central to the Bible, right? And so what God, I said it a minute ago, what God was doing through all of these offerings as he's preparing Israel to go into the promised land. So, let this, let this weigh heavy on you. For God's people to worship him, blood must be shed. Why? Because we're sinners. We're broken. We can't be in God's presence unless we are made clean. And so for God's people at this time, the way God was like, you can be in my presence is through the shedding of blood, through the shedding of bulls, through the shedding of goats, through the shedding of lambs, through the burning of incense, all of these things. In order for God's people to be in God's presence, there had to be the shedding of blood. The shedding of blood was central. And it was that shedding of blood, this is important, it was that shedding of blood, that sacrifice that allowed God's people to take their inheritance. It's that shedding of blood that allowed God's people to take their inheritance, right? So we're not there yet, but eventually we're going to get to the promised land. Eventually Israel's going to get to the promised land. And then once they get to the promised land, newsflash, they're going to screw it up again because we're sinful people. But in order to get there, in order to get their inheritance, there had to be blood that was shed. And the same is true today. The exact same thing is true today. A sacrifice for sins must be made. But before we get there, there's a couple things that Israel learned from this process of sacrifice. Throughout all, we read the passage from 29 that talks about the Day of Atonement. If you were to go to Leviticus and read about what happened at the Day of Atonement, there would be two lambs. There would be a lamb that was brought before all of Israel, and the sins of Israel would be put on this lamb, and it would be slaughtered. And then there was another lamb that would be brought before all of Israel, and the sins of Israel would be put on the lamb, and the lamb would be let go. Right? There'd be, it's almost like there's this um, way in which God was forgiving their sins by killing the lamb, and there was a way in which God was forgiving their sins by forgetting a lamb. There's two, there was, we call it a scapegoat, and that's where the original idea of a scapegoat came from, was this idea that there would be a goat, that'd be a lamb that would be sent off into the wilderness to be forgotten. So Israel's sins were forgiven, and they were forgotten. And then the year would start over, and they would sin again, and they would screw everything up, and then it'd have to start back over next year at the Day of Atonement. But atonement, the covering of sins, is necessary for God's people to be in God's presence. So let me, let me pull out one little neat detail from all of this. Throughout 28 and 29, there's time after time after time where on this day of this month, make this sacrifice. On this day of this year, make this sacrifice. And one of the things that we can understand from this, and what we can even understand from the story of Zelophehad's daughters in 27, or any of the um, different illustrations that we see in the book of Numbers, is that God desperately cares about details. 
He cares about the little things. He cares about um, Zelophehad's daughters in the same way that he cares about the sacrifices that need to be made in order for Israel to be in his presence. And what this means is, is in our lives, God cares about the details. I can't tell you how many times I think something is insignificant and I, God doesn't really care about it, so I don't need to take it to him. You ever feel like that? The details are very significant to God. The details of your life are significant to God. Nothing is too small for God. Because if you look at this, and you look at all of the different measurements of the things, it's like a third of an epa, which is like a small little measurement. I actually don't. It's like this says an epa is about three-fifths of a bushel or 22 liters, right? So you can think of 22 liters of, I don't know, anything, soda, whatever. Um, But God cares about things down to the smallest detail. And so think about that for your life. God cares about you down to the smallest of details. It doesn't mean that the same uh, sacrifice for your sins doesn't need to be made. We all need a sacrifice that needs to be made for our sins. But God cares about the details of our lives enough that he gave a way for us to be in relationship with him, to be close to him. He cares about the details, and he cares about them so much that we're going to see here in a moment. It's all going to come together, this conversation of offering and sacrifice, and we see Jesus being the ultimate offering and the ultimate sacrifice. See, God cares about the details, and there's a reason and there's a reason why today the details of all of these offerings, they're not, they're not the same today. There's a reason why this isn't a blood-soaked altar. There's a reason for that. It's because there's a different blood-soaked altar. So if we were to look at Hebrews 10.10. 10. So the first thing I wanted you to pull out of this, these two chapters was worship. The second thing I wanted you to pull out of these two chapters was worship sacrifice, that a sacrifice is necessary for the covering of sins. The third thing that I want to pull out of this chapter, these two chapters, is that Jesus is the sacrifice that fulfills all of these things. That Jesus is that sacrifice. So if we were to go to Hebrews 10.10, this is one of my favorite things that happens in the Bible. We, there's, you could read through every single one of the offerings that are required for the sins of God's people. But then we get to this really unique not Hebrews 10.10, 10, Hebrews 10.4, I'm sorry. We get the author of Hebrews writing thusly. He says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And we just spent, there's two chapters in the book of Numbers talking about how many bulls got to be killed and how many lambs got to be killed, how many goats got to be killed in order to cover sins. And what he says here is, newsflash, bulls and goats, they can't take sins away. They can appease God's wrath for a time, but they can't take sins away. Never once did a bull or a goat actually forgive the sins of God's people. Why? He says here, bulls and goats can't take away the sins of people. They can't take them away. They're not good enough. But then in Hebrews 10.10 it says this, And by the way, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered once and for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. So we see in the Old Testament, offering after offering after offering, God is making a way for his people 
to be able to be in His presence. And it's by the shedding of blood. It's by the sacrificing of something. And then in the New Testament, what we see is that something is actually Himself. It's actually Him. You want to be in God's presence, right? He allowed Israel to be in His presence for a time by the shedding of bulls and goats. But what really brings us into the presence of God once and for all, for all time, is the shedding of Jesus' blood. Not the blood of bulls and goats. Not the blood of anything else. Not of fire offerings or anything. What brings us into God's presence once and for all is Jesus. He is the perfect fulfillment of these things. So whenever you're thinking, should I read the Old Testament? Yeah, you really should. You really should because you won't understand the weight of what it means in Hebrews that Jesus made a final sacrifice unless you see how many sacrifices God's people had to make. That they had to sacrifice goats and bulls and all of these things. And then God says one day there will be a different way. There will be a better way. Right? We can look to the prophet Isaiah to see the foretelling of the Savior who would be crucified on our behalf. And look, if we were to go back and we were to read all the way from Genesis through Deuteronomy, you want to know how many laws there are that God's people had to fulfill? There's an actual number, 613. 613 laws that they were expected to fulfill perfectly. But what they found, right, when Jesus came, was that even their actions, even the actions that, that led them to making sacrifices, even those actions weren't truly pure. Why? Because it wasn't a deed that could cleanse them. Because their hearts were filthy. Their hearts were unclean. No sacrifice they could make from a from a filthy, wretched heart could actually make payment, could actually cover them and for their sins. No, they needed something better, something that would get at the root of the matter, something that would start at a heart level. They needed Jesus. They needed Jesus to come and die as the perfect Lamb of God so that their sins could be taken away. Isn't that a beautiful picture that we, we see the shedding of the blood of bulls and goats and lambs? And then we have the Lamb of God come and shed His blood once and for all. For all sins. So that by one sacrifice we might be able to come into God's presence. So in the same way that Israel was expected to make sacrifices so that they could be in God's presence. In the same way that Israel was expected to make sacrifices so they could take their inheritance. In the same way that's true for us. Jesus was sacrificed so that His people could once and for all take their sacrifice, or take their inheritance. Jesus was sacrificed once and for all so that God's people could take their inheritance. So when we read the book of Numbers, that's the point of all this. And one of the things that I love, if you were to go to Luke chapter 24, we see a beautiful picture of Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And we see this beautiful verse in verse 26, chapter 24, 26 and 27. Jesus says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer, that these suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus walking alongside these men on the road to Emmaus, Jesus walked alongside these men and explained to them the things from the books of Moses, first five books of the Bible. So Numbers 28 and 29. He explained to them from this passage who he was. 
the things that were concerning himself. You see all these offerings that God's people had to make? You see how they have to keep making offering after offering, day after day, year after year. They keep after making all of these different sacrifices. Don't you see how there needs to be a better sacrifice? How there needs to be a better Savior? How there needs to be a true and final once and forever lamb to be slaughtered? This is what Jesus would have told his people on the road to Emmaus. It's a beautiful passage. So, so the three things that I want you to pull out of these two chapters is that worship is central to God's people. That it's on his terms, not ours. And that God is more important than our time. Because if you look at all of the different things that God expected of his people. The second is that sacrifice is central to God's people being in God's presence. And the third thing is is that Jesus is that sacrifice. Jesus is that sacrifice that allows us to be in God's presence. So yes, there are all sorts of rituals and laws and conversations about offerings in the Old Testament. But take heart knowing that Jesus has fulfilled all of those things. That Jesus has come to make it so that we don't have to continue to bloody this altar because he was made bloody for us. So when we we look at Numbers 28 and 29, that's what we can take hope in. We can take hope in the fact that none of these offerings, we don't have to, on the seventh month of every year, um, make atonement for our sins by killing a lamb. We don't have to do that any longer. And so the beauty that we see when we come to the, the Old Testament and we read passages, even passages like this that are really confusing about offerings and all of these things, we can take heart in the fact that Jesus is our sacrifice. That shouldn't be... That shouldn't be insignificant to us. It shouldn't be insignificant to us because the fact that Israel and God's people had to go through all of these things, that that should be heavy to know that we no longer have to do that. We no longer have to make offerings daily, monthly, weekly, yearly, and at special times throughout the year. We no longer have to do that because of Jesus. So we, we should be encouraged by that. We should be excited to know that the things of God, because of Jesus, are different than what they were. One of the things that is so fascinating, I know I'm preaching on numbers, but you can't preach on numbers and not talk about the book of Hebrews. One of the things that I love so much about the book of Hebrews is there's this conversation throughout the book of Hebrews where God's people were in complete rebellion against God. They were in complete rebellion against God. In a lot of ways, they were really similar to the sins of God's people after they left Exodus. After they left Exodus. After they left Egypt. The Exodus from Egypt. You remember the story? God's people left Egypt and then after a while they were like, slavery wasn't that bad. Let's go back to slavery. You remember this? God's people wanted to go back to slavery because it was better than walking in the wilderness A similar thing is happening in the book of Hebrews. God's people, Jesus has ascended and is in heaven. He's no longer on earth. And the Jews who had become Christians are like, was all that real? Was Jesus really God? There's a temple over here that I could go make sacrifices at. And that would make me feel better about my sins. I could go and make sacrifices for my sins again. And so the author of Hebrews writes Hebrews and says, no, 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 don't. 
do that. Don't go back to your former way. Don't go back and make sacrifices for your sins. Jesus made the once and for all sacrifice for your sins. All those offerings and numbers, all those sacrifices that were required of you, they're not required of you anymore. So stop looking back at your past and wanting things from your former self. That's not what God wants from you. He wants you to follow him. That's why he sent his son to die for you. There's no longer these rules and rituals that you have to fulfill in order for God to be, in order for you to be in God's presence. That's not how it works anymore. Jesus has come. And so I love the book of Hebrews because, because the author writes in that way and it's so applicable to us today. Especially when we think about offerings and sacrifices. How often do we want to go back to a former life that makes us feel better in the moment? That makes us feel better in the moment and reject the things that Jesus has for us? How often do we want to turn away from God and look back at our former self so that we can feel better for a time? See, the beautiful thing about sacrifice in the, in the Old Testament, from sacrifices in the Bible, is that not only are sacrifices present, but they're necessary. Jesus had to die for us to be in God's presence. And for some reason, in our sin and in our brokenness, often we think that that sacrifice isn't enough for us. We think that in our sin, oh, I can't pray today because I did something really dumb yesterday. So I'll wait a few days and I'll feel better about myself in a few days and then I'll be able to go to God in prayer. Or I don't feel like I can really open my Bible today because I, you know, I yelled at my wife or I was short with the kids or whatever. I, I don't think I can open my Bible today because I did that really dumb thing. So I'm going to give it a few days and I'll make myself feel better and then I'll be able to open my Bible again. But what we see in the Bible is that Jesus made a sacrifice once and for all. He knew that his people <laughs> were really dumb sometimes. Made a lot of mistakes sometimes. He wasn't surprised by the fact that we're a sinful, broken, wicked people. No, he, he, he was aware of that whenever he went to the cross for our sins. And so my final application for you would be this. As we think about offerings and we think about sacrifices and we think about all these things, stop re-sacrificing Jesus every time. It's going to sound weird. Stop re-sacrificing Jesus every time you make a mistake. We often want um, our, our guilt to be absolved because we make another mistake or, or, or you know, um, there's this one sin that I really struggle with and I just can't seem to get over it. And so I need to, I need to feel better about myself before um, something needs to happen, before I can go to God in prayer. I can go to God through reading his word. And what we're doing by that is saying that Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough. He needs to go to the cross again for me. That's not true. We all have brokenness and we all have sinfulness. Just look at God's people rebelling in the wilderness. But what we can pull out from this, what we can pull out from this, is that God cares intimately about the details of our lives. He cares so intimately about us. He loves us so much that when he went to the cross, he not only thought about our past and present sins, but he cared about our future sins too. And he bore all of them so that we would never have to make another sacrifice for our sins. Sure, we should have a little bit of conviction whenever we commit a sin or we pursue some level of brokenness. 
But we need to lay all of those things down at the foot of the cross. We don't have to make a sacrifice every day, every month, every year. We don't have to throw Jesus back up on the cross because he's, pay, he's made the payment. Our debt is clean because of what Jesus has done for us. So I'm going to pray. And when I pray, um, I, I believe Pastor Brian does this. There's a time of response. Um, what I want you to be thinking about is the sin in your life. And I want you to be thinking about how because of Jesus, despite your sin, you can still be close to him. Despite your brokenness, whatever it may be, if you're a son of God, a daughter of God, God's not far from you. You don't have to make another sacrifice for your sins. You don't have to have another offering for your sins. Because of what Jesus has done, you can go to him. You can run to him. You can trust that God still loves you despite your brokenness. There's no more offerings that we have to make because Jesus made the once and for all final offering. Let's pray, church. God, we love you. And you're good to us. And we are, we stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. You've made us clean. And I pray that this morning that the brokenness and the hurt in the room, those, those who have sin that they're hanging on to, God, that you would allow them by your grace and mercy to let go of that sin. Your mercy is new every morning. And I just pray that we wouldn't heap guilt and condemnation upon ourselves for things that you have forgiven once and for all. And God, I thank you that we don't have to bloody this altar and come time and time and time again to make offerings and sacrifices because you went and made the ultimate sacrifice for us. So God, we love you, and I pray that this morning, that as, as we leave this place, what we, are remem- what we are reminded of is your goodness in making that sacrifice for us. That, that anybody who wants to partake in this grace and mercy by calling out to you, calling out your name, can be clean, can no longer be guilty for their sins. But because of the blood of Jesus, they'd be white as snow. We love you, Lord. These things we pray in your son's name. Amen.